hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Right, welcome back to the next episode of ECLS Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. Today we're joined by Professor Patricia McCoy to talk about Silicon Valley Bank, uh, this banking collapse, the, the runs on the bank, all of the drama. Uh, professor McCoy is a professor of law at Boston College Law School where she teaches insurance law, banking regulation, and other financial services regulatory courses. Patricia McCoy received her law degree from UC Berkeley. She was a partner at Meyer Brown in Washington, D, uh, Washington D.C. She's also worked at the U.S. Department of the Treasury where she helped form the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. McCoy's research interests focus on the nexus between financial products, consumer welfare, and systemic risk analyzed through the lens of law, economics, and empirical methods. She has testified before Congress and has been quoted in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and on NPR. Professor McCoy, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for being here. Just just before we get into the more technical details, I just want to walk through a quick overview of the facts of, that, that have happened in the last few weeks. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank, known as SVB, collapsed on March 10th and was taken over by the FDIC um, after experiencing a bank run and a, a mass withdrawal of deposits. This was the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. Two days after that, Signature Bank failed on Sunday and was closed by regulators, which was the third largest banking failure in U.S. history. Uh, another notable bank, First Republic, still afloat but trying to avoid the same fate as SVB. Um, and five major banks have actually deposited $30 billion into First Republic to kind of help with liquidity concerns. So there's a lot more going on than that in the U.S. and around the globe. But before we get into those details, I just wanted to ask you, you know, take a step back and ask a broader question of, you know, more generally, how a banking panic like this or in general starts, um, and when it does happen, who are the main regulatory players, right. and, you know, what are their roles, and, and what do they do? Right. So, a hallmark of a bank mm -hmm. is that it offers checking and savings accounts, and these accounts, as we all know, um, are available to withdraw funds at any time immediately on demand. And so the way that banking panics can happen is where there's a run on deposits that too many depositors want to yank their money out at once. Um, if, if that occurs at one bank in isolation, we call that a bank run. If that panic then spreads to other banks, we call that a bank panic. And so we, we have seen signs of an incipient, in other words, a, a, a beginning bank panic in the United States. Um, I, I say this all to stress that bank runs and bank panics are psychological phenomena. They, they uh, feed on themselves. If depositors become jittery that they can't withdraw their money because the bank doesn't have enough cash to actually pay them, um, that panic can spread, and that's that's what we're living through right now. Fortunately, it seems to have calmed down quite a bit from what we saw 10 days ago. Um, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, as to your question of, of who are the regulatory players, um, uh, for purposes of, of the crisis that we're going through right now, at the federal level, there are three main players. Um, there are we have a crazy system in which we have three federal agencies that all regulate banks and examine banks. One of them is the Federal Reserve. Another is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, um, you know, as we all know at the FDIC. And then the third one is the comptroller of the currency. 
which many people haven't heard of, but it actually is very important because it regulates our four largest banks, the the mega banks, um, the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world. Um, and essentially, these three agencies have overlapping jurisdiction, but they just divide up each each examines and, and regulates a different group of banks. Uh, so I was thinking beforehand, you know, there's a lot of different ways to ask this question, but I figured asking it simply would be the best one. What happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Well, um, it's, it, it, it's a very simple story on one level, um, which, which is that uh, it had very little cash on hand in case there were elevated depositor withdrawals. Um, it, that's a situation that makes the bank very vulnerable if there is the beginning of a bank run. Um, in addition, about half of its assets had been used to buy federal treasury bonds, U.S. treasury bonds, and federal mortgage-backed securities. Normally, these are considered very safe assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally, that would have been an uncontroversial decision. However, Silicon Valley Bank was guilty of bad timing. It bought these bonds when interest rates were um, at bargain basement levels. They, they, the interest that these bonds paid was very low. Mm-hmm. Um, subsequently, the federal government, the Federal Reserve, began raising interest rates, and it's been doing that rapidly. In fact, I just came back from class, and the Fed had raised interest rates. Um, and so um, what happens in a rising interest rate environment is if a bank like Silicon Valley Bank has to sell its bonds that are paying low rates of interest, investors don't want to pay full price for them because they can get higher interest rates by putting their money elsewhere. So investors who are willing to buy these bonds uh, will not pay full price. In other words, they will demand a fire sale price. Now, that's not a problem if Silicon Valley never had to sell them. If it could just hold on to those bonds until maturity, it would not lose money and it you know, be making those meager rates of interest as, as well. But SVP did have to sell them because um, the uh, depositors of SVP were generally very sophisticated depositors. They looked at the bank's balance sheets. They saw it had very little cash on hand. They saw that the value of its bonds were dropping, and they got jittery, and they started pulling their money out. Mm -hmm. Well, to pay those withdrawal requests, first SVP burned through its cash, but that wasn't very much cash. Mm -hmm. And then it had to raise more money to to continue paying off the depositors who were requesting their money. So it had to start selling the bonds, and it had to sell them at fire sale prices. It started sustaining losses. It announced it sustained a $2 billion loss, and all hell broke loose 
among the depositors. And that's when we really saw a massive run take off. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of jump off of that point and, and talk about some of the repercussions of that. What I found interesting was, you know, the, the SVB collapse happened and then um, Signature Bank collapsed. But then you have First Republic, which is still afloat, but, you know, it's, it's facing financial trouble. And you have some of the biggest banks in the world, you know, Bank of America, JP Morgan, then deposited, e e I think, each $5 billion for a total of $30 billion to First Republic. Um, and it's just interesting that, you know, in, in any other industry, it seems like if your competitors are doing poorly, like that's good business for you, but not in the banking industry. So how did that come about? Was that something that's like required? Was that organized by uh, a federal agency? Or was that something that the banks came together and did because it was good for the industry as a whole? Right. So first of all, it was certainly not required. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, my understanding from press accounts is that this was a collaboration of the big banks and the Treasury Department. Mm -hmm. Probably the Federal Reserve was in those discussions as well. Um, uh, according to the press, um, uh, Secretary Yellen urged the four largest banks to um, make an infusion of deposits. Um, uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase um, was open to that idea. He, he uh, I think, clearly felt that the banking industry had an obligation to try to stabilize the industry um, and uh, took a leadership role in doing that. Um, uh, the federal government did not kick in any money, but I think they, they were playing an important coordination role. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about why this happened now at this particular point in time. You know, the tech sector in America for over a decade now has seen unprecedented exponential growth. You know, today's tech oligarchs, you might even call them, have become the richest firms in the history of humanity. Uh, they take risks, though. You can think of Amazon not recording a profit for many years right. in order to, you know, in, invest in its growth. And you can talk about the other tech players. And, and cash has been poured into oftentimes pretty risky startups. Uh, at a certain point, though, the stratosphere growth had to come to an end. Um, can you tell us a little about the timing of events? We've heard about, you know, cash during the pandemic being hoarded by uh, individuals and by companies alike, uh, all of the money that's been saved in banks. But, you know, like in law school, you, you talk about a chain of causation maybe with tort law. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little about the chain of events that led this to happen at this particular point in time? You know, I, I think if I were thinking like an economist, um, I would come up with a number of hypotheses and then would caution that no, nothing is certain right now. We don't know the exact causal effects and we don't know exactly what was the role of each contributing factor. But let me throw out some possible contributing factors. Um, first, first of all, we are in an environment of um, both inflation and rising interest rates, which are, are designed to combat inflation. Rising interest rates um, make it much harder for startups to borrow money um, because they're going to have to pay back higher payments in order to repay the loans. That makes lenders less likely to qualify them for loans. Um, and also in this environment, venture capital funders are somewhat more wary of financing startups than they probably were a couple of years ago, in part because they, 
they know that the ability of startups to repay other financing is um, is is somewhat more questionable today, and they they view the startups as even more precarious than usual. So so the financing of of startups right now is not as firm, and certainly not the spigot um, is not wide open the way that it has been in prior years. So I want to talk a little about the anatomy of a bailout itself. The FDIC temporarily created the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara, the uh, DINB, to distribute insured deposits before replacing it with a bridge bank in Massachusetts right down the road from here. As a matter of fact, you saw people lined up in Wellesley at the SVP to collect deposits that uh, created some images that in some ways paralleled, you know, it's a wonderful life. You know, the classic idea of a bank run with people lining up out front uh, to, to with, try to withdraw their money. H- how does that work? W- what is the anatomy of the so-called bailout? So what happens when, um, I, for, I'm going to step away first from the word bailout and then remind me, we will circle back to that, okay? Um, when the FDIC determines that it has legal reasons to close a bank, um, what it will do is actually physically seize the premises. Um, And in this case, the FDIC, I believe, showed up on Thursday night and by um, Friday morning had closed all of SVP's locations. what closure meant, first of all, was that FDIC employees <clears throat> swarmed all over those buildings. They secured the files. They secured the the computers and got all the passwords. Um, and so the FDIC took control of all this information. It locked the doors. No customers could, um, over that three-day period, walk into an SVB branch and do business. Um, what also happens during closure is that the old management is fired and the new management becomes, becomes the FDIC or its designee. Um, in, in reality, what the FDIC does is it hires as an agency contractor a very experienced banker who is, has experience in bank turnarounds. Um, this this person who is hired is called the receiver. So so um, this person is the receiver for the FDIC, and their number one goal is twofold. It is to make sure that the depositors are paid off, and it is to then collect all of the assets of the failed Silicon Valley Bank and um, put it in a big fund and then distribute those assets to pay off the, the other creditors. Now, as for the bailout, normally the depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, as I think everybody knows by now, would only be insured for up to $250,000 per depositor at that bank. However, to quell panic, Federal financial regulators made a decision that they would expand deposit insurance coverage just at that bank and just at Signature Bank to to every dollar of deposits. 
So when we when we have a debate about was there a bailout at Silicon Valley Bank, the debate is over whether that lifting the deposit insurance cap for the depositors was a bailout. And and certainly with respect to those depositors, it was. Um, I, I want to emphasize, though, that the bondholders of Silicon Valley Bank were almost certainly wiped out. The shareholders were wiped out. And the management lost their jobs and probably face enforcement actions at a minimum. Um, so, so this was not a bailout of the type that we saw in 2008. It was a more limited rescue. When you say enforcement actions, what is what do you mean by that? So federal banking regulators have a big toolkit of um, punitive actions they can take against bank managers who engage in in um, either unsafe and unsound practices or or outright misconduct. Um, the the um, least serious one is called a cease and desist order, and that looks like an injunction. It basically says, stop doing this this thing that's unsafe. But they can ramp up. Um, the regulators can impose fines that can be really substantial, and they can – this is the most interesting one – they can fire a manager from their job and prohibit them from ever – working in the banking industry for the rest of their life. Wow. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to move, talk a little bit about um, Dodd-Frank, which was you know huge banking regu regulation that, that was passed in 2010 after the 2008 financial crisis. But more specifically, in 2018, there was a partial rollback of some of the banking re regulations, which kind of only – put the, the, the heaviest and most scrutinizing regulation on the, the biggest banks with over $250 billion in assets. And so some of these banks that are failing now, SVB, weren't, you know, didn't reach that, didn't go over that threshold. And I was just wondering if you thought you could draw a direct line from those rollbacks as to kind of being the main cause to this banking panic now. I, I don't know if they were the main cause, but they, they certainly were a contributing factor. And, and so... Everything you said is correct, and I'll just add one one clarification, which is before the 2018 legislation was passed, the most uh, the the strictest federal banking regulations applied to any bank with total assets of 50 billion dollars or more. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was in that group, um, and so was First Republic Bank. In 2018, that threshold was, as you correctly noted, raised to $250 billion. And so suddenly these two banks and their cohorts in that asset size that used to be more heavily regulated reverted to light regulation, L-I-T-E regulation. The 2018 legislation also rolled back something called a capital stress test, which basically says to a bank, we're going to have you do a simulation um, uh, of a disaster like a pandemic um, or like climate change um, or, or, or simply a run on deposits and see if you can survive it. 
Um, and and so these two banks no longer had to go through the full stress testing that larger banks do. All of these things are relevant to what has happened over the past 10 or 12 days. About 89% of SVP's deposits were uninsured. Uh, some of the most sophisticated financial services companies, banks, tech firms, etc., had their money invested in SVB that without a bailout would be unprotected in the event of failure. Is it unusual or unwise to park so much money in one place? I certainly think that the events of the past um, few days have um, gotten everybody to rethink the wisdom of parking all of one's um, bank accounts at one institution. Um, there, there is um, a whole function in uh, financial management called treasury management that is designed to help customers safely manage their money. And uh, part part of treasury management is considering whether a company wants to split its money among multiple banks in order to get full deposit insurance at each. Um, that can be inconvenient. Um, but it certainly, if, you, if you're worried about loss of principal, that, that is one way of making sure you never lose a cent. Um, today, fortunately, there are brokerages and there are other, other firms that will take a company's lump sum of money and do the splitting for them and actually automate the access to that money. And so it's not quite as clunky today, today mm -hmm. as it sounds. Was this type of crash, panic, uh, bank runs, et cetera, w was this inevitable given the environment that we discussed earlier, that you discussed earlier with regard to interest rates? And do you think that any regulatory changes based off of this are going to be forthcoming from the Congress down the line? Yeah. So first of all, was it inevitable? No. No, it, it certainly wasn't inevitable. Um, managing what we call interest rate risk is banking 101. And why do I say that? The way that banks traditionally have made money is they earn more money on their investments, on their assets, than they pay on their deposits. Um, and as long as they make sure that their assets are earning more interest then they have to pay on the deposits. Um, they they should be profitable. SVP lost lost sight of that basic lesson, um, and so had they engaged in proper interest rate risk management, um, they should have been doing fine. There are hedging instruments to help them do that. There are all sorts of techniques to manage interest rate risk so they don't get into the situation that Silicon Valley Bank did. This was not inevitable. What's interesting is that the Federal Reserve Bank, which was its federal regulator, met repeatedly with SVP expressing concerns about its failure to manage its interest rate risk. And those meetings began at least as early as 2019, mm. which is, you know, think of it, four years back. And there were multiple meetings. There were um, uh, at least, there was at least one enforcement action. Mm. Um, so uh, we're going to have questions about the Federal Reserve's oversight. But SVP was well aware that it had a problem and it wasn't doing mm -hmm. 
nearly enough to to contain it. Do you think that as a result of that, do you think that SVB will serve as a cautionary tale that will lead to changes in regulation or not so much? It is a cautionary tale. I think it will lead to some changes in regulation. I am not um, optimistic about the changes coming out of Congress. I'm not optimistic about statutory reforms. We all know the reason why. Um, But the federal banking regulators have um, significant rulemaking authority and discretion under existing statutes to to tighten the regulations. So, for example, to tighten those liquidity rules for medium-sized banks, to tighten the minimum capital rules for those banks. I would be shocked if they don't do that. Um, This is a group of agency leaders who take solvency regulation extremely seriously, and I I do think we will see um, uh, new rules coming out from them. I also think that they will intensify the examination process. Yeah, so following up on that, um, this is the second banking crisis in the last 15 years, if you count the 2008 financial crisis and now, yeah, the third. The third, pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so based off of that, do you think, because it's interesting that I feel like we've had these conversations in 2008 and following that, like, oh, we're going to tighten regulations and then, you know, a few years later, they roll it back and it happens again. Do you think they're going to... I don't want to say, like, you know, you think they're going to stick this time for longer than a decade, or do you think that it's time for, like, a drastic change where banking, even, you know, midsize and smaller banks, because of how intertwined the banking system is, um, do you think, you know, we heard a lot about too big to fail. Do you think we're just going to expand that and kind of make it, you know, banking the banking system more of a public-private partnership and just have just way more government control? When I've looked at, at banking history, we, we see um, history, history rhyming. Mm-hmm. In other words, we have a very long history of financial crises followed by stricter regulation, then followed by relaxation of that regulation as memories fade. Um, we saw that with the 2008 crisis. We had the crisis, which was truly terrifying. Two years later, Congress passes the Dodd-Frank Act, which was landmark legislation um, uh, imposing stricter regulation and even new, whole new types of regulation that we'd never even imagined before. And then over the following 13 years successively, that was chipped away at in various ways. Um, here we are at the next crisis. Um, we probably won't get a Dodd-Frank out of Frank Act out of that, but we probably will get some stricter administrative regulations. And then I do predict that um, over time those will be relaxed again. Um, one one of the things that I think is probably in in the future of the United States, given how polarized our country is is that administrations and control of Congress will um, go back and forth between the two parties. Um, And many would argue that that's that's a good thing. It can be destabilizing for for financial regulation to have such 
big swings back and forth. But I think that it's just hard baked into our political system. So the term moral hazards being talked a lot about in the news, and it was something that was discussed substantially following 2008. What is truly the policy when it comes to situations like this? It seems like in a way bailouts are somewhat to be expected. The uh, Wall Street Journal this morning had an article entitled Life Certainties, Death, Taxes, and Bailouts, and it opens with this. Uh, Benjamin Franklin famously observed that nothing is certain life except death and taxes. If he were around today, he'd be tempted to add one more to the list, bailouts, the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. A mid-sized institution, at best with 17 branches within California and Massachusetts, $175 billion in total deposits, followed an all-too-familiar script of panic and rushed government intervention. Uh, it's, is that the case? Would you agree with that, that it seems like bailouts are you know, somewhat to be expected? And, and does that really feed into what we talk about when we talk about a moral hazard? Right. So um, I am concerned that the federal government has, and Congress have said too often Read my lips, no more bailouts, right. and that mantra has become unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, it is true um, in the events of the past two weeks that the federal government has not bailed out shareholders. It has not bailed out bondholders. It has not allowed complicit management to keep their jobs, and it has not lifted the deposit insurance cap for the entire banking industry. It only did it for two banks. That said, the fact that it raised it for two banks or lifted the cap for two banks telegraphs that the federal government might be willing to do it if any other banks are teetering on failure. Yesterday, Secretary Yellen gave a speech saying that the federal government stands ready and willing to do what it takes to prevent the failure of any other medium-sized banks. She was asked in Q&A, well, what, what techniques are you talking about? And she said, um, I, I'm not prepared to comment on that. But the, but the message comes through loud and clear that, that bailouts, bailouts are not off the table. How is the decision made to bail out a bank and which banks to bail out and insure deposits over what's required? It seems necessary in a way to head off a, a domino effect, but on the other hand, it sounds like there's a problem if you're always going to do it. So how do you decide which banks and, and when to do so? I have to say, unfortunately, it's, it's a very um, pragmatic decision. Um, the understanding on the street is that the four largest banks will never be allowed to fail. Um, they they are of a size and um, complexity and global reach that is unparalleled among other banks in the United States. Then then how about the banks in the next echelon going down to a Silicon Valley bank or a First Republic bank? Um, apparently, um, the decision was made in the past two weeks that we cannot allow them. Um, to, to fail without a rescue of the depositors. They were forced to fail, and I want to emphasize that. They were forced and closed, and, um, and the shareholders were wiped out. But there was a bailout, a rescue of the depositors in full. Um, usually, the smallest banks are left to fail with no sweetener at all. 
Um, and so that may be the, the situation that we find ourselves in is, is any bank that is medium size or larger can expect federal assistance. Do you think that federal decisions at the federal level on bailing out banks are political? I don't want to say that politics never comes into the equation. However, um, the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which which takes the lead in closing banks, um, is highly professional. It operates according to um, uh, to a a very complex set of legal constraints. Um, it is committed to following the law. Um, that said, um, where politics might enter into the decision, we saw a situation where the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and of Signature Bank led to depositor panic at other medium-sized banks. And there are um, uh, unsubstantiated um, but I think credible reports of incipient bank runs at a number of other banks. Um, and the concern was that a very large number of smaller businesses could lose all of their money in banks if their banks failed. Um, and um, that is an economic concern, a very serious one, but it's a, a political concern as well. Yeah, I just want to go back to the the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit. And I know you said they, they only guaranteed all deposits at those two banks, but do you think that also creates kind of a moral hazard um, where, you know, every time there is a banking run, they, you know, they kind of like go do away with the limit? Um, and additionally, do you think that should they, are there any other solutions to that? Should they raise the limit? Should they just be more vague about it and say it'll be a case-by-case -case decision whether things are will, will be insured or whether they'll raise the limit? Right, right, right. So I'm very, I'm very concerned that raising or lifting completely the deposit insurance cap for any particular institution creates moral hazard in that it's sending a signal to future banks, you can take outsized risks, gamble on a big profit, and if the gamble doesn't pay off and the bank fails, know that the FDIC now is likely to cover all the depositors, not not just a smaller group of depositors. So, so in I, other words, that the backstop's always going to keep up with you if you keep taking these risks. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I, I am opposed to um, raising the cap. I would not have um, rescued all of the uninsured depositors at these two banks that we've been talking about. Um, instead, what I think is really important is to um, supervise the banks to try to make sure that they don't get into this trouble in, in the first place, um, to require them to have greater liquidity, more cash on hand, better hedging of their interest rate risk, so that they do have the funds to meet elevated depositor demand, demands. If they do, panic will quell. That will calm down panic. As long as depositors can request their money and see that they're able to walk away, and the next depositor is as well, um, then, then we're going to, um, we're, not, we're, we're not going to have concerns about contagion. So I'd rather do a, 
good job on the front end of preventative measures rather than willy-nilly raising um, the cap every time there's a panic, creating more moral hazard, which means more risk-taking, which means more crises in the future. Uh, all right. Well, I think that, that does it on Silicon Valley Bank, an interesting story that I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about. Uh, well, Professor McCoy, thank you very much for uh, coming in and talking to us today. This has been BC Law's Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely with Jim Fiore and Patricia McCoy talking about Silicon Valley Bank, uh, public policy, and everything that goes into all these discussions we're hearing today. Uh, Professor, thank you again. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it.